As we come now before the very Word of God, if you'd like to read along with me, we'll be in 1 John chapter 5. This is our last Sunday in 1 John, so if you'd like to read, you can turn there. But before we read, would you please pray with me? Our Lord Jesus, according to the will of the Father, you have kept us, you have guarded us. We know that you are the good shepherd, and we are your sheep, and you have not lost a single one. So Lord, as the good shepherd, would you guide us now in truth and in humbleness, By your word, would you shape us in holiness? Would you send your Holy Spirit among us now to help us to see with our eyes, to hear with our ears, and to believe with our hearts? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is 1 John in chapter 5, at the end. Uh, We'll begin here in verse 20 and read to the end of the letter. 1 John 5, beginning in verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of God. Now, This is the very end of John's letter. We've been here for quite some months, but today we'll look at this very, very last sentence as we take up today the matter of idols. It may seem to some readers, even to me initially, as I was trying to unpack this, that this is an odd way for John to end. It feels almost abrupt. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the first and only time in the whole letter uh, that we've even heard John mention idols at all. You know, why does he suddenly say this here? It seems a bit out of place. Is this some sort of afterthought? Is this a sort of, by the way, a little P.S. at the end of the letter? You know, P.S., say hi to your mom. P.S., keep yourselves from idols. You know, as I've spent more time with this sentence and trying to lean into it and dive into its depths, I've come to think that, that this line is actually supposed to stand out. In some ways, it, it maybe feels out of place because it's, it's drawing attention to itself on purpose. Technically, this sentence is the only command in all of chapter 5. 
Everything that comes before this in the chapter is John telling us what is true, things that we already do, or things that we will do. But now here, in this very last word, he tells us what we must do. You must keep yourselves from idols. And even though the word idol is unique here, this idea has been running through the whole letter. So this letter doesn't have a greeting to a particular people. There's no hi, hello, uh, either at the beginning or at the end. There's no address to a particular place either. It was sent out to circulate to all the churches. And by circulating, we don't mean that it was a chain letter, that someone got it and then you sign your name at the bottom and pass it on, sign your name at the bottom and you pass it on, nor that you just drop it in the mail with a stamp and it'll somehow get to where it's going. In the first century when this is written, uh, this would have traveled by personal courier so someone, we don't know who, would have come with this letter, traveled by foot, holding it in hand, someone who was also a fellow disciple of Jesus. And so that person would have arrived in, in, in the particular city that he goes to and, and gathered all the Christians together in the church of that city. He would have introduced this letter as, as a traveling testimony from the Apostle John, which is why John doesn't need to sign his own name. And then the courier would have read the entirety of this letter to the Christians, and then they would have discussed it at length talked about it, unpacked it together as a church, trying to figure out uh, how to really lean into this and apply all of these things. Uh, they've now heard word from John. John would have been very familiar to those early Christians as an apostle of Jesus. At this point, John is probably one of the few, if not the only, remaining eyewitness who traveled with Jesus. And John would have been seen by the church as, as a pastor, as a shepherd, as a sort of spiritual grandfather to them. So he calls them here at the end, he calls them little, little children. He's not just talking to the kids, he's talking to all the people, little children. That's not belittling them, that's an endearing term, a term of affection and care. John is writing to encourage all these little children, all of us to give all Christians greater confidence in Jesus. He wants the good of God for us, that we would join together in fellowship, that that would bring us joy, that we'd continue to fight against sin, that we would abide in Jesus, the bringer of truth and light and, and the love, he would, that we would know eternal life that comes in Christ, that he's the true God and eternal life. And all of this, John knows and we know, isn't going to be just smooth sailing on peaceful seas. The waters here have waves that are fraught with threats against us. Pressures of the world, the spirit of many antichrists, even the very works of the devil himself. And John addresses all those things throughout the letter, but here at the end he does not talk about threats from outside. He talks about a threat on the inside, that there are false gods in our own homes that would turn us from God. 
And so we're to keep ourselves from idols. Now, the big question, maybe this is already in your mind, how? How do I do that? How am I supposed to do this? And in order to get to that question, which we will, we'll spend good time with it, we first need to know what idols are. What is it that we're looking at here when John talks about idols? The scripture speaks most plainly and frequently about idols as physical objects. These objects that are in some way integrated into worship of God. The most famous idol is, is the golden calf. Probably know all uh, most of this story. Uh, you know, uh, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. He's getting the Ten Commandments, and while he's up there in the cloud with God, Aaron the priest is down at the foot of the mountain with the people, and, and they throw together uh, a golden calf. They make a physical object, and Aaron says to the people, "Here are your gods that brought you up out of out of slavery in Egypt." And you know, to us, at least to me, maybe to you also, a scene like that seems just ludicrous. It seems so you know, obviously silly. They're at the foot of this mountain with a huge cloud in it, thunder and all this, and, and they're building a tiny little altar to worship at the feet of a cow who is the object of their own hands. And on one hand, the scripture really does depict idols as that silly as these sort of lifeless figures. Um, The author of Psalm 115 talks about this a good bit. Psalm 115, verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but don't speak, eyes but don't see. They have ears but don't hear. They have noses but don't smell. They have hands but don't feel. They have feet but don't walk and they do not even make a sound in their throat. He says these idols are like toys, dolls, figurines. My favorite description of idols is is from the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 10. We won't read there, but there Jeremiah calls idols scarecrows in a cucumber field. Seems very specific. I don't know why cucumber field, uh, but you know, you get the image. We've got this scarecrow at a cucumber field, and, and that scarecrow has to be carted around to the place that you want to put it, right? It has to be propped up on a post, or else it's going to just like kind of fold over. And something like that, Jeremiah says, you don't need to be afraid of it. it, it because it can't do good, it can't do evil, it can't do anything at all. And that's in line with what the Apostle Paul says. He says, listen, an idol really has no existence. It is no thing. It is nothing. On one hand, Scripture depicts them as these silly, lifeless things. But on the other hand, idols are not entirely powerless. They can become powerfully dangerous. And it's not because of anything in the objects themselves. It's because the thing that that object produces in us. In Psalm 115, in this big discussion of idols, silver hands, they, don't, they have noses, they have all these things that they can't do. The very next line after that says this, those who make them 
become like them. Those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them, the psalmist says. In other words, the idol makers become just as silly and lifeless as the idols they've made. Idol makers eventually have eyes that go blind, have ears that go deaf, have mouths that go dumb. Because idols are false gods. Idols make a mockery of God. They're an abomination to God. It is sin, idolatry. Idols also make scarecrows out of us. And none of us really wants that. You know, as foolish as these physical idols are, uh, physical idols are fairly prevalent in the Old Testament. Uh, that's still the case well into the New Testament. In, in John's day, it seems to even be affecting people in churches, these physical idols. Even in some places now, still, there are various shrines and statues and graven images around worship. Those are very destructive. Those are sinful things. And I have no doubt that John is warning us against those sorts of physical idols. So I don't want to downplay the physical component to this. But I also don't want us to assume that he only means physical idols. You know, we shouldn't think, oh, I've kept myself from idols as long as I don't see a gold cow in my living room. No, I hope there's not a gold cow in your living room. But the absence of it does not necessarily mean you don't have idols. Because the prophet Ezekiel tells us that the people of God had taken the idols into their, heart, into their hearts. These false gods had infiltrated not just their homes, but their selves. God has made humans, made all of us by nature to be worshipers. That's a good thing. But we've taken our worship, which is rightly toward God, and we've, we've twisted it sort of exchanged the worship of God in all of his glory and begun to worship created things. And that's not just a worship that happens once in a while. This is at the very root of our sin. Tim Keller talks about this quite a lot in his book, Counterfeit Gods. Uh, some of you may know uh, Tim Keller. He's uh, recently died. Uh, but a faithful uh, writer and Presbyterian. He says this about idols, a very big claim here. He says, idolatry is not only one sin among many, but idolatry is what is fundamentally wrong with the human heart. Idolatry is always the reason we ever do anything wrong. That's a big statement, isn't it? Idolatry is always the reason we ever do anything wrong. In other words, if you are envious 
underneath that sin of envy is some idol. If you are slanderous, underneath that sin of slander is some idol. If you are sunk into sins of, of slack, sex or, or drunkenness or gambling or any of the quote-unquote big sins, underneath that sin is some idol. If you lack kindness or faithfulness or self-control, underneath that sin is some idol that itself is sin but is breeding more sin. And this idea helps us understand then how John's closing words of the letter are not just an afterthought here, not just a PS that comes out of nowhere. This is a large part of what John has been telling us all along. When he says, keep yourselves from idols, that's a deeper way of saying, keep yourselves from sin. Now, the big question is, how? I want to do this. I know I need God's grace and the power of his spirit. That's always true. To do this, how then do we keep ourselves from idols? And the rest of our time, I want to give us three helps to put this sort of thing into practice. The three helps are to own, to tag, and to price our idols. I'll unpack what those are in just a moment. Own, tag, price. Let's look at the first of these. We need to own our idols. By this, I don't mean it in a sense that you need to go out and buy idols that you don't already have. If you're renting an idol, well, you need to go ahead and purchase it. That's silly. That's not what I mean. I mean own our idols in the sense that we admit the ones that we already have. I'm not just talking about confessing it. I'm talking about recognizing it. Because you cannot keep yourself from what you cannot see. If you, can, if you cannot own it, own the reality that you are prone to idols, that the problem is not just, oh, other people and their idols, the problem is in me. If you refuse to see that, you are already well on your way to being a scarecrow in a cucumber field. Paul talks about idolatry, well, a good bit in his letter to the Corinthians. But he words it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. He says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This is not a hopeless situation. God will give you the means to escape this temptation, but you need to first 
own the reality. Whatever is common to man is also common among you. So now John is closing his letter with this warning about idols that's not just aimed at a slim minority in the church, just a few little vulnerable individuals, a few little children that might be struggling here or there, but not really for the rest of us. This is for the whole church, for all churches really, and every member in it. And that continues to be true for generations well after the time uh, of the writing of the New Testament, in the 16th century during the period of the Reformation, there was a Christian reformer named John Calvin. Uh, many of you probably know his name. Uh, he's a pretty famous guy. John Calvin, his magnum opus was a book on theology called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. It sounds like a riveting read, doesn't it? Boy, it is, it is a hefty uh, work and fulfill, you know, it's vibrant, full of life, but it's big. And probably the most famous line out of this whole volume is a single sentence that he writes about idols. John Calvin says, the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. It's a pretty vivid way to put it, isn't it? The human heart is a perpetual factory of idols, that somewhere in ourselves, our internal gears are churning and turning out a conveyor belt of little gods, pumping out just one after another, after another, after another, after another, after another, like a parade of toy soldiers that are slowly dropping off the end of the belt and piling up and filling the room with clutter. The human heart is a perpetual factory of idols, he says, but uh, Calvin was French, so he wrote originally in French, and the original French language gives us a little perspective. I don't know any French, but I noticed that, that the word that's translated into English as factory of idols, the French word that he uses there is boutique. We're, we're a boutique of idols. The heart is a perpetual boutique of idols. It's an interesting perspective on it. You can imagine then a little shop with walls of racks of shelves and curio cabinets lined with these knickknacks of idols, all staring with their beady, unseeing eyes. And left to our own devices, if we don't guard against it, we become that. We don't just make gods. We keep them, we protect them, we dust them, we coddle and cherish them. So we need to own them before they own us. That's the first, we need to own our idols. The second is this, we need to tag our idols. Tag our idols. So to to own that we are prone to idolatry is just the first step. But we need to go a step further. We need to identify which idols in particular fill our boutiques. 
identify them, name them, mark on the tag what they are. We know idolatry itself is common to man, but not every particular idol is in the same way common to every man. Different people wrestle with different idols. And it may take you some time and work to identify what your particular idols are. So you're going to have to ask yourselves some good and honest questions that might help to identify idols. A few of those questions might look like this. What do I think I can't live without? Or what occupies most of my time and my thoughts? Or what is most likely to consume me? Or what do I go to when I am stressed or angry or anxious? Because those things may be idols of the heart. Some of the most common idols that Jesus calls out, he just bluntly names them out in the open, are three. The three he names most often are money, sex, and power. So if you're working to try to tag your own idols, you should not you should not ignore looking into at least those three. But the idols of the heart that most of us are likely to overlook are not just things that we would consider bad. It was, it's easy for us to, to miss most idols because these are good things that we've just gotten absorbed by. An idol can begin as a good that is turned to a bad. So we hear lots of glorious themes in John, really big ideas about truth and life and light and love and all of that comes in Jesus. These are good things that we ought to pursue, ought to desire, they're gifts from God, and yet we know that even these good things can grow into their own gods that we set above Jesus that we separate from Jesus. Let me do a quick rundown of these, a quick scan of the boutique shelves, and see if you recognize any of these or any of these hit home. We can make gods out of life. Oh, sorry, I missed one. Gods out of truth. Let's do truth first. The gods of truth may be obsessive about staying informed or current a person who worships the God of truth might be constantly plugged into media because they can't bear the thought of missing something. The God of truth would cause us to feel like I need to be right. And if I'm not, I'm going to blame others if I'm ever wrong. That's the God of truth. There's also gods of life. The gods of life, idol gods of life, might get fixated on things like avoiding germs or disease or danger or disaster. 
someone who worships the God of truth might throw themselves into, into exercise or excitement or energizing things. The need for this person is to be active. Someone like this cannot bear to be still for a moment and does not know how to rest. Others worship the gods of light, that, that they might be ones who, who strive to be the ones that other people look to for safety and security, that I'll be the lighthouse in the storm. I'll be a guide to give you resources and answers and support. The need for this person is to be needed. That, that I think that my main value is in whatever help I might be able to give someone else. And others worship the gods of love. They think that, that just to have a few good friends or family, that's what life is all about. And as a result, they, they can become possessive, controlling, even putting pressure on those relationships. Ones who serve the gods of love need to be wanted. And they will begin to come undone if they ever feel even a little bit rejected. That's just the beginning. Idols have a thousand grotesque faces. But it will help keep us from idolatry if we can begin to put name tags on our idols so that we will recognize them. That's the second, third, and finally. It will help us to price our idols. Price our idols. I stretched the name of this one just a little bit to fit it into the theme of the boutique. Uh, you know, but price our idols. Here's what I mean by it. Not that we need to put a number value on everything. You know, most of the time we cannot do that. But by price, I mean that we need to gauge a thing's proper worth. Now, some idols are literally worthless. They ought to be tossed out as soon as we come across them. If you've got golden calves or silver shrines, it's best to just chuck those out your window and get rid of them immediately. But most idols aren't worthless. They have some good worth. They have just gotten overinflated in our sense of their worth. Most idols are, to begin with, a real good that we've begun to value so highly that they reach a place that is godlike and so become sin. Which means that the response to keep ourselves from idols is not throw out or destroy the good altogether. Oftentimes, we cannot and should not do that. Instead, we want to demote these things from their throne to mark them down to their rightful price. And some idols, many idols, seem to us priceless. 
that it would be impossible to quantify them, but they're not quite priceless in the way that we like to think about them. Jesus tells us, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? In that moment, Jesus essentially asks us to set a sort of price. Which one is more value to you, the whole world or your own soul? He's asking us to gauge the worth. And this can be hard and sensitive real fast. Let me give you an example of a common idol that would seem priceless. One of the most common ones I see is children. Children become idols to their parents. Now, children are good, so good gifts of God. Children are our most precious treasures. Our children need to know that and hear that from us. We give our children our time, our energy, our very heart. We would lay down our own lives for our children. That is good. That is God-honoring. That's what real sacrificial love is. But we cannot allow our children to be our gods. What an awful thing that would be to do that to them. You know, we may think that we want to be someone else's whole world, that we sit on their throne, that we're the center of their universe, but in reality, none of us can bear the weight of being worshipped. It is a crushing thing to be someone else's God. So our response in this is not to, to give up our kids. That would be nonsense. Nor to sacrifice them. We're not asked to do what Abraham was asked to do with his son Isaac. Nor are we to shun our kids or belittle our kids so that they're going to see and know their proper place. That's cruel. We don't want that. The command is not keep yourselves from children. It's keep yourselves from idols. So we want to avoid having our children become an idol. To keep our kids from turning into idols, then, we need to take our kids by the hand and bring them with us into the grandeur of God who is to be worshipped. Bring our kids to join with us in praise to God. Join with us in prayer to God, to join with us before the word of God, to join with us in the work and service of God, to join with us in confession to God, to join with us in singing to God, to join with us in loving God that keeps them, 
that protects them and us from idolatry, that together then we see and worship the wonders of the true God who alone is worthy of all of our worship. God alone is the priceless, matchless God. And we don't do this only with our kids. We want to do this with each other. You know, the command to keep yourselves from idols is not an individual command. It's a communal act. Keep ourselves, we keep ourselves together from idols. Which means we we pray for each other. That God would give us life. We love each other. We encourage each other that, that this is really something worth keeping, guarding, protecting. Because we, we want these idol factories to grind down to a halt. We want to slash the idol status from all those boutique merchandise things. We want all of that to be stripped away so that we can see God. Why would we even begin to trifle with false gods when we have the true God? Our God gives life and truth and life and love. He gives, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Our God made us his children. Our God destroys the works of the devil. Our God sent his son into the world to save it and to restore the world. Our God calls us to keep his commands and his commands are not burdensome. So little children, for the glory of God and for the good of us, keep yourselves from idols. Pray with me. Our Lord, we look to you for this. We need your grace, your help, your strength always. Would you strengthen and encourage us to keep idols far from us? Help them to flee from them and to you, and flee from them and run to you. Lord, would you draw us toward that which is good? And Lord, you are great, worthy of all of our praise. Help us to honor you with all of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.